0: Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astro's master of banter, Blummer.
1: I continue to have conversations about Goose Gossage with people because I got to see him when I lived in Connecticut. Yeah. And so you can't compare Goose Gossage. I mean, you can compare the, the, you know, generation, generation if you want. But if you are going to talk about volume and responsibility, he has to be one of the best closers of all time. He would come in in the eighth inning, seventh inning, and throw two and a third or three innings all the time because they were trying to. But the starters would also Ron Guidry would stay in the game eight or nine innings, and you couldn't get him out of the game. Nowadays, that's like a Verlander or a Cole. Like you, th- there's ten of those guys in the it's league. It's a
2: very select few,
1: right? There used to be a hundred of those guys that you couldn't yeah. get out. You know, our number one and our number two, and sometimes our number three starter. Their job was to pitch one through nine. You know, yeah. first inning through the ninth, and if we can't get them, then we got these guys in the bullpen that aren't specialists that throw 98. They're guys that can, you know, mop up some innings or, Hey, we won four games in a row and we need a guy to eat up in it. Anyway, we could, that's our generation. Well, and the,
2: thing, and the, the talent pool was, it was, it was shrunk. Like you didn't have 30 teams, you know, they're talking about going right. to 32 teams. And once you get that many teams, you start to dilute the talent. Yep. And, you know, everybody's like, well, look at the parody in the NFL. They have 32 teams, but is the, is it real parody? Or is it just like everybody just kind of got suppressed back to the means because all the talent spread out. Yep. And you can't have these super teams in in right. the NFL because you've got 53 man rosters. In baseball, you've got 26 man rosters. You know, yeah. you can do it in the NBA. Yep.
1: That's exactly right. Because of the contract flexibility and because there's yeah. no way either franchise tag or salary cap that really means anything. I mean, yeah. It is funny they have a salary cap and then it's like so that which owners willing to pay the luxury tax if you're willing to pay the luxury tax then there's no friggin salary cap like what is I mean it's like yeah. A what fake if
2: you're thing. that's actually you know what you're right though what if you're an owner you know uh the Astros have been lucky because they got got they drafted guys that actually developed and turned into superstars but what if you are Steve Cohen and you're like look I'm going to own I bought this team I'm going to own it for 10 to 15 years I'm in a city where the value of the ball club's going to consistently go up but why not who why do I care if I pay the luxury tax for the next 5 6 years? I'm going to dump yeah. it and get that money back anyways in 10 years and I'm it's not a loss, you know, in the long term. That's so right. why wouldn't you just fire money out there, buy the super team, pay the tax, beat the hell out of everybody and move on?
1: Right. Cuz you they're going to make that up in spades. I'm reading a book right now called Die with Zero. It's really interesting, yeah. which is you know people are saving all their money and then they're 90 years old and what they wanted to do was hike Kilimanjaro and take a trip and it's like it's too friggin' late. So yeah, Steve but it Cohen, is too late. Same thing. Yeah, and you know, and there was anyway. We we've started the podcast. We had nothing to talk about. Now That's all right. All it just
2: forces to Marco to edit the edit this section right. right back into somewhere in this That's podcast. Right. <laughs> so so Warwick done. No, made, but just like, keep he, going off. Just keep going on that yeah. tangent though. Right,
1: no, that's what I'm saying. Warwick Dunn played for the Atlanta Falcons, Florida State guy. He was really legit. I just saw an article yesterday. I don't know why or where that came up, but he had like I think he had career earnings of like 36 to 40 million dollars. But you know, after taxes and all the stuff like that, but he invested eight and a half million dollars of his own money into the Atlanta Falcons as a part owner. Oh wow! And they just talked. Yeah, when he retired, and they just talked about when. Uh, I think it was Blank. Arthur Blank bought the Falcons. It was worth about four hundred and sixty million dollars, yep. and worked on as a minority owner. And now that thing's worth about four billion. Maybe it was eight hundred million to four
2: billion. So the return on up, that like, investment is better than any stock market you can get into.
1: Exactly. So he t- he basically turned it. You know, if you d- if it's a five hundred percent increase, he took his eight million dollars and turned it <sighs> into. You know, yeah. I mean, he's loaded. And it's yeah. just smart. It's smart business. But I think to your point, why would you worry about paying the luxury tax if you already know you're in a city and you're increasing the value? And if that team wins, the value even goes higher. So I, I, anyway, that comes back to saying we had nothing to talk about. But I, I think it's interesting that um, you know that we're in this position where uh, we're going to force we need something to happen. So, we're going to force people into the Hall of Fame on this year. The game has changed. Everything's changed. And uh, it's going to continue to evolve. And I just think it's funny. Square peg, round hole. Like, what? It's great to yeah. have a Hall of Fame discussion. But the way Jason Stark wrote that article was like, well, Andrew Jones, like, I've always used the, is the guy a Hall of Famer or not? What's your gut instinct? Yes or no? Like, Philip Rivers is a good example because I'm always like, eh. I love mm-hmm. Phil Rivers. You probably know Phil Rivers. You probably met him a few times, you guys, <laughs> Padres, Chargers guys, right? Like, yeah. I'm sure he's a great dude, but I don't, you know, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. He never won the big game and all that. I mean, he was a great NFL quarterback. There's nothing wrong with having that moniker. Played for forever the rest of your on your life. great
2: championship teams and didn't get the yeah, big one.
1: Right. But I don't even know if that's the equivalent. I just mean, I don't yeah. look at him. It's it's kind of the gut instinct, right? Yes, you got to get into the weeds. But now, like I said, Jason Stark's looking at Andrew Jones and Scott Rowland in a different light. And I don't know if you should use a different lens or a different light to look at them.
2: Yeah, this is the Bleacher Blooms podcast. You're obviously hearing us banter. Normally, we keep this for off air, but things were going so good that Marco <laughs> pushed, the, pushed the button to record this thing. And it's going to... He can just let this thing run, but this is the Bleacher Blums podcast, and when we got on this with my co-host, David Tuttle, who you just heard talking about the Hall of Fame, that was kind of the initial talk, was what are we going to talk about? The Hall of Fame, he sent me Jason Stark's article from The Athletic. It was a very good, very well-thought-out article. We appreciate Jason Stark just because he has a little more, he adds humor and uh Man, humor and a little more of the fan aspect to some of his articles, I feel like. But he really digs on the numbers and tries to validate what we're talking about. And the idea was, are we trying to fit guys into the Hall of Fame because we feel it necessary to put people in the hall of fame. And if you, if you go back and if you've been listeners of the Bleacher Blums podcast for a while, we greatly appreciate you. We love you. And this is why we've been on this podcast. This is why you listen is because in years past, Tuttle and I kind of foreshadowed this idea that we're going to get to the point where you start to run out of the Greg Maddoxes, you start to run out of the Randy Johnson's or the Jeff Bagwell's and Piazza's and guys like this. And you start to co- start to talk about our contemporaries that Tuttle and I played against both in the minor leagues and big leagues? And are they Hall of Fame worthy? What is the idea of the Hall of Fame? And we talked about the potential for for writers who vote these guys in adjusting the scale to the generation or the era of baseball to get these guys in. But Tuttle, we'll get it going again. And welcome to the podcast. Why, Why are we trying to adjust the The requirements to get into the Hall of Fame because of these generational differences, and should we be doing it?
1: So, yeah, so I think we're talking about two different things. I don't mind adjusting the metrics, right? So, if 500 home runs, that's
2: something that might have to happen.
1: Right. 500 home runs, 300 wins as a pitcher, you know. That generation's um, gone. Yeah, we know that's gone. So let's not use that metric to rate whether you're in or not. So whatever the new metrics are, you mentioned Jason Stark's article. He did a pretty good job providing some color around what his new, um, I don't know if it's new, but his mode of thinking is around you know how these guys are. But I do think Hall of Famers are kind of a gut instinct, and then you get into the weeds, meaning it's a yes or no answer. And I think you'd probably be better to answer this in the sense that you know the guys on your team I believe mm-hmm. that were Hall of Famers. You know, Andrew yeah. Jones, I think, was a good example in Stark's article. Uh, Scott Rowland. I think, those guys kind of started out on Hall of Fame careers. But this is the same thing that somebody did when Pat Mahomes went to two Super Bowls in his first three years, and he won the he won one. And and you know, uh, uh, some guys are homers as well. But they were like, "Oh my God, he's going to be the next Tom Brady." It's like, wait a second. <laughs> Time Wait out, a second. Dude. Like, I mean, and now being compared to the goat is a whole nother thing. But let's—that's what—that's what I think I see with those guys. Is you, if you played against them or played with them, Andrew Jones was a uber talent. Um, you know, a, a, a superstar in the making. Um, obviously, had some injuries, some off the field stuff that kind of maybe changed his trajectory. Scott Rollin, the same thing. He was consistent down there, had some years, but he tapered off. Like, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know the answer and I haven't got into the, but what I, what started this conversation is I feel like because we don't have a front runner or two front runners on the ballot to get into the hall of fame this year, we're looking to get somebody in so that we can have a ceremony at Cooperstown, whether it be from the, you know, the, um, committee, right. Cause you, there's always some, uh, yeah, that veterans committee, cause the they voted veterans Fred committee. McGriffin. Correct. And, and that's fine. I think, I actually think Fred McGriff, you know, is a hall of famer. So that's that's kind of funny because of contemporaries, but anyway, so whether it be the veterans committee, I I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world if nobody got in on a certain year, I guess that's my
2: point. Well, wouldn't that be, so the interesting thing, and you have to look at this because I, I think it would be interesting to hit the reset button on this. I think it would be great to have Fred McGriff be the only guy up there. And the, and let me just. Let me just state this. On this current Hall of Fame ballot, these guys are going to be on this ballot. If they reach a certain threshold, they can be on this ballot for 10 years. So that's where I'm like, my, my initial is, are these guys first ballot Hall of Famers? I don't think so. I think that these guys need a little more time, a little more fermentation, or whatever you want to call it. They need to mature a little bit in their ballot to get in. Because when I think first ballot Hall of Famers, I'm like Ken Griffey Jr., Nolan Ryan, Randy Johnson, you know, some of these guys that were just elite. Other guys belong in there, but dude, if you're gonna get on that, get in on that first ballot, give me 10 all-star games, give me five more, five or more uh, you know, gold gloves, silver sluggers, MVP. I mean, be be elite of the elite to be the first ballot and then find your way in after that. That's where I'm kind of at with the Scott Rollins and some of these guys that are on the first ballot. Carlos Beltrón, he made it he made a great argument for Carlos Beltrón which is you know now we you and I played through the steroid era and some of those guys have crept into the Hall of Fame and some guys aren't going to creep in there. But now you have this era of you know sign stealing and Carlos Beltran was named in Rob Manfred's, you know, sign stealing uh, controversy. So does he get in, or does he have that stigma of, quote unquote, cheater? You know, and how does that work? You know, but right. being a first ballot Hall of Famer, you've got to blow my doors off. It's got to, my eyes have to say that guy was unbelievable. He dominated his era. I don't have to go to the peripherals to say he's going to get in. He is right. in the Hall of Fame. And then once you get past that and you get enough votes to stay on that ballot for a little bit longer, let's get into the weeds a little bit and prove that you belong in the Hall of Fame. And I think that's where we're at with Scott Rowland. Todd Todd Helton is a guy I played against. And it's funny you say like the, you know, Tuttle and and I, our eye test and our ability to judge talent is going to be different than a writer who's covering and getting into the numbers. Whereas Tuttle and I are like, what is it? am I afraid of this guy when he steps in or when he's on the mound? What kind of impact does he have on the game? And there are guys like that. Todd Helton was that guy for me. I was just like, good Lord, we have to face this guy again. There's a dude on first base, second base. He's going to score. And And every time he'd drive a ball in the gap, whether it be pull side, going the other way, he was a great hitter no matter where he played. But then you say, Scott Rowland, I go, I played against that guy since A ball. And that guy is pretty damn good, but I didn't realize how good he was over the long long term of his his, uh, career. Andrew Jones, initially through the first four years I played in the big leagues, I was like, F that guy. He's taking hits away from me everywhere I'm going up the middle. And I mentally thought about trying not to hit the ball to center field when Andrew Jones was out there because I knew he was gonna catch it somehow but i look at his numbers over the over his career and i'm going yeah he faded pretty quick he hit a lot of home runs but his batting average was not that good and some of those ops plus numbers really not that great so he deserves consideration but he's not going to be that first you know two or three ballot guy getting in there you know that's how i feel about it
1: Yeah, no, that's great color around. I mean, I think that's a great example. Like Todd Helton probably made eight or 10 All-Star games. I think it's funny because we talk about steroid error. We talk about the controversy with Carlos Beltran. I mean, Todd Helton and those guys get a little bit of a ding because they played in Colorado, which is kind of silly, right? Larry Walker and Dante Bichette and those guys, uh, you know, Vinny Castillo. They were looking at those guys like, yeah, these guys hit 40 home runs. Instead of talking about the fact that, Larry Walker had Bichette hitting behind him. So you better fate, you know, you better throw him some pitches, right? <laughs> We've talked about that before too. So I do think those guys get dinged in that regard. But I agree. If this guy struck fear in you and the manager had a meeting about him and said, look, we do not want to let this guy beat us, yeah. make him beat you, like throw him soft stuff away. Don't let him pull the ball and make sure he hits a ball the other way. And if he does, tip your cap to him. If that's the guy, then like you said, and and You know, I never get into the first ballot, second ballot, third ballot, but it really makes a, it does make a difference in that I think baseball is a game of consistency. And somebody like Roland, who had a pretty strong average and put up, you know, numbers year after year after year as a solid piece of a lineup, Mm -hmm. those guys do get consideration, which I think was your point. Andrew Jones, who faded for me is like. I mean, then that, then now we, then, then we're looking at like Brady Anderson. Maybe we put him on the ballot, right? Because, you know, he had a couple of years with 45, 50 home runs. I mean, anyway, so we, we do need to, and I do think it's a valid conversation. I wasn't trying to diminish the accomplishments of these guys who I think.
2: Oh, no. um, I don't think you deserve
1: consideration. What I do think is not. Not every year is somebody ready to be in the Hall of Fame, you know, and even if Todd Helton does get in or Scott Rowland gets in eventually, maybe this isn't the year. And so let's not force a a square peg into a round hole and say, yeah, we got to get somebody in this year because we're having the ceremony. We're having the luncheon. We're having everybody, you know, meet up in Cooperstown. You know, we can have a year or two where that just isn't it isn't meant to be. And these guys aren't ready to go in. Not that they're not Hall of Famers, or they are, or they are Hall of Famers. So, anyway, I just, I do think it's in an interesting conversation. When we started, we said we didn't have a whole lot to talk about, and, <laughs> and I, and I do find it, uh, you know, interesting that maybe the next thing we do is define the metrics, and we don't have to do that on the podcast, but we can certainly come up with some yeah. of the, you know, like the save numbers. I think are skewed sometimes. I mean, yep you know because now we have a closer so it's like great goose gossage had 25 saves and like 20 wins one year right but he threw three innings at the end of the game
2: yeah
1: like we're only bringing this guy in when the, you know when the game's on the line and he has 48 saves every year it's kind of like meh. you know I, i'm not saying those numbers are artificial or inflated but you know darn well like a a four to one game when you're against a team and you're facing the bottom of the lineup and you bring in best I was your gonna say guy, facing
2: like, the, you know, the Miami Marlins and you're you know yeah. I don't know.
1: No, I mean when so, it comes to the, dollars. But to contract.
2: your point, yeah, but you're you're a pitcher and I appreciate that. You know, the say the the number of saves you accumulate, obviously you're pitching in extremely high leverage situations according to baseball rules. You know, three runs or less. Yeah. last inning of the game, last inning and a half of a game, whatever it may be, your, your, your focus is to go out there and win games. And I think this is why pitchers are starting to revert back to wins is because they're comparing themselves to Tom Brady and saying, look, he, he won ball games. He, he was in a position to win every time he was out there Granted, you need your team to help you out, but it's still, you're putting yourself in a position to win. And I think that's where you find, you know, closers. If you're racking up a ton of wins, you're on a championship team, most likely, you're pitching extremely well, and you're getting a good team defense behind you to get you through these. But but there is, that you do need to get past the save number for me. And I think that's where this year, Billy Wagner needs to get in. Billy Wagner has some of the greatest numbers we've seen. And that article written by Jason Stark in The Athletic really did a good job appealing back as far as opponent batting average, strikeouts per nine, you know, some of the leverage numbers that he did have really explain the greatness of Billy Wagner. And I'm, to be honest, I know I'm a homer. I'm a little biased towards everybody in Houston. He's an ex-teammate. Love the guy. He's Just a phenomenal dude for me. But his numbers are so good, and he was so dominant for so long that it surprises me that he's not in there yet. And I think he will get in there. Um, How do you feel? Uh, That'll be Billy Wagner. I want to get to another guy after this who's on that ballot who might be running out of time that needs to get in there. But Billy Wagner, your thoughts on that? Because it kind of goes to what you were talking about, about the save number. Is it the save number itself, or is it how they got the saves?
1: Well, I think we've touched on this before. I can use a personal example. I remember the year... One year I was playing an A ball. I was like seven and one with a three and a half ERA. The next year I went to double A and I was two and nine with a four ERA. I feel like I was pitching the same. I might've walked a few guys, but again, maybe that team was more selfish. The defense wasn't as good. You know, the luck didn't go your way. And I was feeling like, gosh, I moved up a level and now I'm two and nine and you'd walk around with your head held down and you're like, wait a second, the numbers, every other number looked really good. Um, mm-hmm. To your point, I think the save number is a little inflator a little artificial meaning like if your team wins 105 games versus your team winning 70 uh 75 games your stat your save numbers are going to be different and i think real baseball people know like you know what's your whip and what's your you know how do you handle high your leverage fits, situations yeah. and yeah all those kind of things like are you walking too many guys right in that in that instance so i do think your peers will kind of tell you, and you mentioned Billy Wagner's (laughs) strikeout numbers and then his, you know, strike per, you know, K per nine. I mean, that guy was dominant. And, you know, we can use the same metric that you talked about with Scott Rowland or Todd Helton. I mean, you did not want to be facing Billy Wagner, you know, in a (laughs) four to two ball game when, you know, the pressure's on you because he was dominant. So I wonder what you think about where he pitched most of his career, probably not in a whole lot of playoff scenarios, not a whole lot of high... It's not that he wasn't in high leverage situations for his team, but he didn't get a lot of postseason experience and postseason accolades. Um, And then obviously pitching in the Houston market most of the time. I know he pitched other places, but um, my thought is that maybe that's part of the we talk about East Coast or West Coast bias with things. Do you think that he's under the radar because of, you know, circumstance essentially?
2: Well it could it could have something to do with it. You know, he pitched in Houston, we talked about that market, you know. It, 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 those were good teams and, you know, he pitched in 97, 98, 99 when the Astros were going out there and just destroying the National League Central. They won three straight Central Division Championships. And of course, he's the last guy on the mound when they're doing the celebrations because he was the closer on those teams. And I think that you do have to take a little bit of the postseason into it, but do you really discount it? Because then it goes back to your wins. You know, my team, I was, I pitched good enough to get to the postseason, but my team didn't pitch good enough. Or like in 1998 with the Houston Astros, they ran into Kevin Brown and the San Diego Padres who just steamrolled them. Or they get into the postseason, they're playing against the Atlanta Braves who destroyed the 90s. So Yeah, You know, circumstance is involved there. He went to New York, uh, pitched with them. He pitched with the Philadelphia Phillies. He actually should have pitched a little bit more in his career, but he decided to hang it up. But he had – you ready for this? This will crush your postseason numbers. He played in eight series, seven years uh, in the postseason, one American League Division Series, six NLDSs, one NLCS, never pitched in the World Series. His career – good grief, it's almost hard to believe, his career postseason ERA, 10.03. Mm. He has he pitched in 11 and two-thirds innings, gave up 21 hits, 13 earned runs. So I think that uh, if you're going to use the postseason metric yeah. to help him out, let's go ahead and just kind of like, yeah. s- let's, let's skate past that and talk yeah. about how he could give up 100 consecutive hits if he came back in the big leagues. And his batting average against would be comp- the same as Mariano Rivera's. Yeah. So that's how dominant he was as far as the regular season is concerned, but those postseason numbers like you're saying, you know, was he on competitive teams or was he closing out games? And I think the other thing for this for the save number, how many of those saves were at 3 runs or, you know, at 3 runs? Because you could come in and have a 4 ERA and get get a save every time you go out there if you're pitching in 3 run leads. It's crazy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that that's a he's a great example of getting into the weeds, right? Like if you're really yeah. considering for the Hall of Fame, his K's per nine were great. He always threw really well um, in terms of velocity. And as you said, he could have the same batting average against his Mariano Rivera. Now you're having a different conversation um, than you would be. But I also and I also do discount postseason for guys in terms of I mean, those numbers are not good. Those sound like David Tuttle numbers in AAA um but Stop. uh no just kidding but the but I'm um, you know obviously you c- that's where you have to get under the hood that's what this conversation's about and look at those numbers and what they mean maybe because like you said Kevin Brown steamrolled the Astros in the in the playoffs you know maybe Billy came in and there was there was a 10 to 1 game and you wanted to keep him sharp for the next thing so he's in there not safe situation right like True, you'll have to start too. looking at those kind of things so anyway um, you had another guy to ask me about, and I'm curious as to who who uh, who you're talking about.
2: Well, he, he's a Cal guy, mm-hmm. and, and another ex teammate, uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Kent. Yeah. As far as a second baseman, if you're if you're watching, you know, <sighs> Ryan Sandberg's in the Hall of Fame. Should Jeff Kent be in there?
1: I'm biased, you know i I, I think Jeff Kent was ornery. Like Barry Bonds got a bad rap, we know oh, this, and you know Jeff time. really well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think Jeff Kent should be in there. I mean, if w- what they also used to do, and we didn't do this before is they parsed out your position and people don't yes, talk about that. Yes, there you go, Tuttle. Is how, this is how Ryan. Yes. Is. So if you have 400 home runs as a second baseman, which is number one all time or whatever, right, then you should be in the hall of fame well, because that's the how they used
2: to do it. Here's yeah. the number. So, as far as second basemen are concerned, and remember that, you know, some of the second basemen that are in there, Joe Morgan put up phenomenal numbers, had a phenomenal career, won championships. Jeff Kent has the most home runs by a second baseman, 351. Most RBIs by a second baseman, 1,428. Most 100 RBI seasons by a second baseman, eight. And he has the highest slugging percentage by a second baseman in the live ball era at 509.
1: There's a there's our guy. I mean, that's a Hall of Famer, right? That's a Hall of Fame second baseman.
2: Technically, what? if you if, if you can't judge him against third basemen and left fielders mm-hmm. and stuff, he is the he is arguably the best offensive second baseman ever.
1: Yeah. No, I'm with you. And I do think he was an impactful player. I mean, we we just I just said this about, you know, Colorado getting dinged, but that lineup, you know, like you said with Larry Walker and Bichette and Vinny Castilla and Helton, like that's a that's a vicious lineup. So, Barry Bonds yeah. needs protection. And if you're gonna walk Barry Bonds 80 times a year intentionally, who's behind him? Jeff Kent batted behind him. Jeff Kent had the ego, the hubris, the confidence Ooh, to be the call. guy to be the guy behind the guy, and he delivered. He delivered clutch hits, clutch situations. He was a solid defender too. I mean, like I said, if you move him to left field or first if base, if you could get
2: to it, you were out. Right.
1: But if you move him to left field or first base and start comparing him to like George Foster or something like that, to your point, it's it's not the same. But yeah. I do think to be the guy behind the guy on winning teams, you know, the Giants were, you know, obviously in the World Series in two thousand two, and they, you know, were getting into the postseason. I, I, you know, like I said, I'm a little Bay Area bias, but I do think Jeff Kent <laughs> is certainly worth the discussion to get in. And as you said, he's running out of time. Does he have what one one or two more uh, shots?
2: Yeah, I think it's one or two more, yeah. Him and Billy are running out of time. So I think that's where, if you were going to force that square peg in, <laughs> those might be the two guys that you could get in, considering some of the peripherals, the longevity, right. and what they did at their specific position. I think you could argue for those guys where you kind of have to wait a little bit with the the Heltons, the Rollins. Uh, the Andrew Jones maybe, but you know, Gary Sheffield is another guy that I like on that hall of fame ballot. You know, I thought he put up prodigious numbers and he was a bonafide threat every time he dug in. So there's some interesting numbers out there. I think, I think the hall of fame conversation is getting better and better, especially between us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, with that getting better, let's, uh, take a break in the, uh, on the blue wire podcast network. And when we come back, we might talk a little bit, uh, NFL playoffs and, uh, Anyway, hey, we're back here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network, the Bleacher Blum's podcast. Thanks for bearing with us. Uh, we're going to talk about the NFL playoffs here, but if you guys have any comments about our Hall of Fame conversation, you can reach Jeff Blum at Blummer27 on both Instagram and Twitter. Myself, at RealDavidTuttle on Instagram and Twitter. All right, so Blummer, we have the NFL playoffs. Fantasy football is long gone and over, but um, many pundits say that this is the weekend to be watching nfl football you got two games saturday two games sunday they're the best teams right the best of the best and uh we're we're gonna see what we are going to find out uh who the best teams are shortly so which games are you uh interested in watching and why and uh and then we'll just kind of get into it
2: well you know, after the super duper wild card and then the super wild card <clears throat> being a, uh, <clears throat> I tried for so long to be a Texans fan, but I reverted back to the Chargers and I was really ticked off when they left San Diego. When the Chargers lost, man, I was freaking pissed dude because that trevor lawrence joey lawrence guy freaking beat him whoa but i like i like the jaguars i don't think this is their year but i like what they've done with that team they really took a chance and put pieces around trevor lawrence um i think this will be good for him. this will be a great experience for him he's already talking a little bit of trash about playing in the you know the, the chief's kingdom where it can be really loud but dude the way that The way that Patrick Mahomes has played and easily the best draft pick I had the entire season in fantasy football, this dude carried my team. But Patrick Mahomes is going to win an MVP this season. Now, we kind of hinted at him being that, you know, in the comparison to Tom Brady. This is really one of those transformative years for me, I think, for him to be able to get to that Super Bowl and win it because there was no expectation. They lose Tyreek Hill. How are they going to manage that? He's got six running backs. They're trying to find these guys. He makes everybody around him better. So I'm I'm kind of on the Chiefs bandwagon a little bit just because of watching Patrick Mahomes and seeing his ability to kind of get through this, I think the Jaguars are a great matchup for them. They'll be able to power through them. Um, I'm kind of curious to see the Eagles, but I don't. How do you feel about the the two wild card weekends and then playing a division game? I mean, these two teams are rested, and we'll talk a little bit about the Cowboys because I think it's hilarious how that fan base is reacting. But where are you at on all these playoffs? And you know, are are you watching a team? I'm kind of on the Chiefs, Buffalo Bills trajectory again.
1: Yeah, and I think that's kind of where everybody was at the beginning of the year. I do like the Jaguars. I really do. I mean, you know, I was bummed that the Chargers I like that lost. Doing. Meaning, yeah, right. It's this is a philosophy versus which team do you want to root for, right? I thought the Chargers, yeah. you know, obviously up 27 and nothing, they should have taken care of business. Uh it just didn't happen. And that's disappointing. But uh but yeah, the 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 Lawrence and the Jaguars and Doug Peterson and what they have going on is is uh I think it's, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with, especially since Doug Peterson has won a Super Bowl. Um, And yeah, he's going to be, he's going to have them going in the right direction. And if you look at where they came from last year with urban Meyer to Doug Peterson this year, it's, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's an absolute complete 180. And I do think that they're going to be a team to be reckoned with. They are not the team to be reckoned with this year. And I go back to what you said, the chiefs bills. I just think the Bengals, man, I, Joey, Joe Burrow is just, you know. Joe Cool is going to be tough, but I do think going up to Buffalo and, you know, the Damar Hamlin kind of um, motivation that they have to kind of win it for, you know, win it for him. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion involved and going into somebody's house, no matter what uh, Trevor Lawrence says, right? Like the kingdom, the (laughs) chief's kingdom, he said, he said he can't imagine the Chiefs stadium being much louder than how Jacksonville was last, whatever, last weekend. And Dude, he's everybody the first person to say that
2: in 25 years of the organization. I know.
1: No, they're <laughs> laughing. They're like, wait, wait till you get there, kid. All right, like, we'll wait, see how what? that goes. So that's right. So I, you know, I don't, I just like the Bengals story. I like their offense. I like the way they play. I like that they're kind of yeah. loose and easy. But you got to think the Eagles are going to take care of business against the Giants. They've beaten them twice this year. Mm -hmm. They have the formula. Jalen Hurts is getting healthy, supposedly. Um, That's going to be the big question mark with the Eagles. If Jalen Hurts is healthy, they're certainly going to be a team to with. If his shoulder gets hurt or he's not playing the way that he was playing to get them to where they are, um, you know, i i you know giants and you know the little engine that could there brian dayball and his motivation is uh it's a
2: good story yeah daniel jones stepping up it's a good story
1: yeah pretty stellar um but i do think you know we're seeing that the chiefs the bills um and i do think the eagles are probably gonna to move on i would like again the homers san francisco homer i'd like to see the niners move on and the one thing you don't want to be in the playoffs is overly confident, and I think that's what you were kind of touching on with the Cowboys seem overly confident. Now they beat the Ooh. Bucks thirty-one to six or whatever. But the sub, here's the they thing: they
2: pounded on a sub five hundred team. Wow, they did.
1: Well, that's the thing is that everybody knew the goat was there. But this is um what it. Uh, this is another like playoffs thing. But you're you are who your record says you are. So let's not Thank you. like right so Dallas Dallas was a good team most of the year they they you know kind of punted and one five? against Yeah, they punted one against the Commanders and everybody was like, oh my God, the Cowboys are terrible. Well, Tom Brady was seven and eight or eight and nine they were. They got in with a sub 500 record and you demolished them and now you think you're like ready to take the the next step. The Niners are on a nine or 10 game winning streak. They got (sighs) Christian McCaffrey at the trade deadline. They are pummeling people. Yeah, I mean, and Brock Purdy hasn't made too many mistakes. So I think- What they say about Brady is to get him off. You know, you got to force him. You got to rush up the middle. You got to have a middle rush with, you know, minimal guys. So two or three guys getting to the quarterback right up the middle makes it tough. They're going to try and shut down the Niners running game, which is the number one running game in the NFL. Um, They're averaging, I think, 150 yards a game for their last six games on the ground. So the idea right on paper for the Cowboys would be to shut that running game down and make Brock Purdy throw all day. Uh, yeah. I just, I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. And I will say, I, I don't watch the NFL like a scout, like we watch baseball. But it was mm-hmm. so weird to watch against Tampa Bay. They talk about um, Diggs' brother. Uh, Stefan Diggs' brother is, dr- can't even remember. It's Number tra- seven. Trayvon? Yeah, yeah Trayvon Diggs. Yeah. That's right. So Trayvon Diggs, watching him try to tackle like Leonard Fournette a few times, he oh, would like come God. up and lay. I was like, if you tackle, uh, you know, if you tackle Debo Samuel or Brandon Ayuk or McCaffrey or like any of those guys, Kittle, they will just say they, Kittle. Yeah, they're gonna run you over. You better not put your <laughs> head down and kind of lay in front of a guy. I mean, I watched Diggs make a couple terrible like efforts. I mean, so if those that's the way, that's right. If the Cowboys are gonna tackle like that, I think it's gonna be a long, a long hill to climb. Um, you said you had, I know you're a Houston homer here, but you said you had some thoughts oh, about the man. Dallas Cowboys. What do you, left coast, dude. we don't hear a lot about the Cowboys. It sounds like the, your paper is talking about the Cowboys quite a bit.
2: Oh, Everyone is like, oh, the, well, because the Texans suck. You know mm-hmm. Le- the greatest play that Levy Smith had was, go- but in his tenure was going for two and forcing the Texans to hit second. That was like his parting gift. It was freaking hilarious. But the whole thing's a mess. So obviously the other team in Texas is the Dallas Cowboys, and everybody's on their bandwagon going, "Dude, we smoked the goat. We crushed him. We beat. We went into Tampa and shoved." I'm going, "You went into Tampa and beat an eight and nine team." Why are you going into that? I mean, the division stinks. It's a miracle they got to 8 wins as it was, and Tom Brady speaking to Hall of Fame, guess what's going to happen when they talk about voting for Tom Brady in the Hall of Fame? They're going to go, "Well, during this portion of his career, he was really good. The last 2 years, we're just going to ignore that because he was awful." You know, so it it's just this whole thing of going, "Man, you know, these guys are peaking at the right time." I'm a Dak Prescott fan, but He looked great against a bad team. What does that mean when you go against the Niners, and all of a sudden you've got this ridiculous pass rush of the 49ers coming at him, and you've got Zeke Elliott who maybe is a goal line guy now. And you've got Pollard. I think there's a lot on uh, Pollard right now because if he's not able to get that ball moving and get through that first wave of defenders, they're just going to go ahead and pass rush the hell out of uh, Dak Prescott and force some bad throws like we saw against the commanders. So there's a lot going on there. But I mean, the Niners... The Niners were really good, and the way that Kyle Shanahan schemes a game, he he, their ability to adjust and scheme around quarterbacks that they have, because they've had, what, four or five this year already, and they've settled on Mr. Irrelevant Brock Purdy, and they're making him look good. Their ability to scheme and create plays to get these guys open is amazing. I love that Purdy's, you know, He's conservative in a sense, but he'll still take a shot. You know, he'll still recognize an opportunity and just sling it out there and somebody will make a play, which is great. But you brought up a good point in bringing over McCaffrey. You can lean on him. Their offensive line's done a very good job. And then Debo Samuel, they create so many opportunities and really alleviate a lot of pressure on Purdy, which I think benefits them. But uh, I expect a pounding On the Cowboys, and don't forget, who schedules a Monday night game in the postseason and says, okay, turn around and play Sunday night? That's that's not easy to do, man.
1: No, the Cowboys are going to have less rest than the Niners do. The Niners are already prepping the whole, you know, they had a whole, I guess they were saying 50 hours, right? They have about 50 hours ahead of them on rest. I will say it's interesting because you know this as well. I mean, you know, being a a seventh-round draft pick, I mean that just means there were six rounds of guys taken ahead of you and you had a 14 year career. It's like we we forget in the NFL there's there's 53 guys but there's only what 32 quarterbacks this year about 60 quarterbacks played they said 60 guys on the planet that can understand an offense doing. We look at Brock Purdy <laughs> like point. he's never played friggin quarterback before. And um, you know Brock Purdy at Iowa State was a four year starter. Um, He played really, really well at Iowa State. And look at Iowa State's record when Brock Purdy was there and look at it now, the last two years since he's been gone. They're not good. So he obviously brought something more to the table, I think, than he's been getting credit for. And the one criticism here on the left coast of Brock Purdy is he hasn't faced a top 10 defense. And you know yep. what the answer is, right? He was the scout team quarterback all year. He faced the number one defense in the NFL. And <laughs> all those guys love and respect him because of how he ran the scout team and the chances he was willing to take. The guy is going to be the Niners quarterback for years to come. Forget about Trey Lance. Forget how about re signing. Right here. Yeah, I mean, why? If it ain't broke, don't why fix not? it. Right. He's yeah. doing the right thing. So keep Trey Lance around and maybe, you know, scheme some things. And maybe they, you know, maybe they have a couple of quarterbacks where well, don't turn him have... into
2: a Carson Wentz.
1: Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so where all of a sudden he just disappears in three years. That's right. But I think well, Purdy doesn't have those expectations. That's how Tom Brady was. You know, I chip think on that's his one shoulder. of the biggest
2: deals is that everything is win-win, and there's nothing more fearful to another team than a guy who has nothing to lose, and everything yeah. is upside with Purdy. That's right, and they'll never blame him for the loss unless he throws four interceptions. They're going to be like, "Well, McCaffrey didn't do this, Debo didn't do that, yeah. Bosa didn't sack that." You know, it's like right. he's he's great spot.
1: That's right. Trevor Lawrence threw four interceptions, and he was looking Still terrible. Won. Yeah. And- and they still won. So, I mean, he's got a good team Love around it. him. I think he's got the right mentality. And I do think on paper, um, the Niners should, you know, the Niners are the smallest spread. But I do think that could be the biggest. And you mentioned the in-game yeah. adjustments. Last weekend, they were losing to the Seattle Seahawks 17-16 at halftime. Mm-hmm. And the final score was, what, 47-20 to or something? I mean, Shanahan went in there. He went into his laboratory and was like, yeah. all right. We gotta we gotta dial it up. This is what how we're gonna exploit um their weaknesses and our strengths and uh, they certainly did that. So it should be a good weekend. I do I mean, we talk about the NFL, you know, enough on here, mostly fantasy football, but I do think it's gonna be an exciting weekend and we're gonna have yeah. you know, two really good championship games. And I think to your point, it's probably gonna be Bills Chiefs and Niners Eagles, and the Niners Eagles would be Ooh, that would be something to talk about. I like about.
2: that one, yeah. I like those calls. I'm in the same boat. It's going to be a great weekend, a lot of fun uh, watching some football. And every weekend that we watch football, we're getting one weekend closer to baseball season. And with the Super Bowl on February 12th, it leads right into spring training. So it works out really well. Um, Tuttle, good job, dude. That was that was a lot of fun considering, uh, you know, we're, we are the Jerry Seinfelds or we're the, the Seinfeld show of podcasts because we show up and we're like, hey, I got nothing. And all of a sudden, we got something, and it was a pretty good one, dude. Nice work today, or this yeah. week, today, whatever it
1: Yeah, is. The, you know, it's week. I, I haven't seen you in a week and a half, but uh, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, we both said we had nothing, and uh, maybe we should try this more often, because when I write notes and when we have a whole outline, <laughs> we either talk too much about different things or we don't yeah. get to what we wanted to get to. So uh, yeah, great job, Blum. Good to see you. Um, take care of the lung butter, the lung biscuits. Get some sleep. Get some uh, <laughs> cough medicine in there. And uh, make yourself feel better. As always on this podcast, we like to uh, give a shout out to the military. Hence my uh, military bleacher blum's cap here. Military, uh, that's right. Uh, Military, police, fire, first responders, teachers, um, anybody that supports um, not just what we do, but what, you know, providing freedoms and safety for us and our children and our families. We really respect the heck out of you and we really appreciate it. And we don't want to let that go. Um, without being acknowledged. Um, As I always say, if you're over the age of 45, please don't forget to get screened for colorectal cancer. And Blummer, why don't you take us out?
2: Get after it and believe it.
1: (laughs) Well, the audience already figured out I'm slower, but being slow in certain things is a a value. That's what she said. Yeah, that's right.
2: That's what she said. (laughs)